0: well good morning Hillcrest wasn't the worship sweet this morning amen put your hands together and show some love to Brad Woods that's great Brad thank you very much I've known that man for a long time since the year 2000 actually 19 years and I can tell you one thing about him is he loves to worship the Lord I did draw the line this morning at a tip jar on the piano, though. I tell you, I said, no, we're not going to do that. But he's there if you'd like to give him a tip, not in cash, but just tell him something he ought to do with his life, and I'm sure that he would appreciate that very much. It's been a wonderful day already in the house of the Lord. May I call your attention this morning to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter number 4, as you're finding your way there, uh, let me welcome those that are worshiping with us in our online community, wherever you may be around our country or even some places uh, across uh, the oceans. We're grateful that you're taking time uh, to tune in to Hillcrest Worship this morning and delighted to welcome everybody here. Those of you that are guests, we're thankful to have you uh, this morning and we hope to see you again uh, at Hillcrest soon and very soon. Today is the uh, eighth and final message in our series through the very short book of Jonah, and it's been a blessing for me to be able to preach basically what amounts to the gospel from the Old Testament book of Jonah. And today we wanna continue a little bit of the theme that we talked about last week, if you were here, and that is the theme of really uh, the response to Jonah of the grace of God, which is one of hostility and resentment We talked about Jonah being the picture of the grumpy disciple. And the title of today's message, very simply, is So You Had a Bad Day. I started to sing that song this morning, and I figured you'd be whistling it the rest of the day, so I'll spare you from that. Many of you, if you've like uh, us, had children growing up in your home, Uh, You may be here this morning as a parent familiar with some of the children's books written by the author Judith Vorst. One of her most popular books is uh, the title Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Is there anybody in the house today that has ever had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Well, Alexander surely did started when he was getting dressed in the morning chewing gum against the house rules and eventually getting it stuck in his hair trying to extricate the gum from his hair he manages to get his clothes wet in the sink and uh, things spiral out of control from there he arrives at the breakfast table only to find that there's no prize in the cereal box awaiting him As he leaves the house to catch the bus, he trips over the skateboard that he should have put away the previous night but had failed to do that, and he has a little injury uh, on his way to school. When he gets to school, the teacher gets on him because she doesn't like his drawing that he completed during the time of art, and he couldn't understand why any teacher would not appreciate his drawing of an invisible castle. I don't know. He gets to lunch at school, pours the lunch sack out, looking for dessert first, only to find that mom had failed to put a little Debbie snack cake in the bag. There was no dessert for lunch. And he gets out on the recess playground, only to be told by his best friend that his best friend doesn't want to be his best friend anymore, that he's found another best friend. After school, mom picks him up for errands, and they go shopping for new Tennis shoes, which should excite a young boy, but he's unhappy about it because mom opts for the plain white sneakers as opposed to the kind that have the flashing lights in them. And so he's angry about that. He goes to the dentist only to have the dentist get on his case about the faultiness of his brushing and only to tell him that he's got a cavity and the drill comes out. And as he goes home later that afternoon with sore gums and sore teeth, He finds that his mother has made him lima beans for dessert, which nobody but Rusty likes apparently at Hillcrest, but he loves them and so do I. But Alexander didn't like them. And before bed, the last scene we have is him taking a bath with soap stinging his eyes. And he goes to bed upset with sore gums, sore teeth, stinging eyes. And the last line in the book is simply this, I believe I will move to Australia. Can somebody say amen this morning? Mel, you may have had a day like that, maybe more than one in your life, where you're just ready to pack the bags and just get out of town, get away from all of the troubles of your life. Well, the picture that we're gonna see of Jonah is that very thing today. We've been studying the book of Jonah for the past few weeks, and in this study, we found that the book really deals with a variety of different themes. More than really that we've had time to cover uh, deeply and intently, I was kidding with somebody the other day that I could have preached easily 12, 15 messages out of Jonah and not run out of material to preach. We learn from our study of Jonah that God is dedicated to the nations and loves the nations. So we learn about missions as we study Jonah. We learn about God's love for all people in Jonah. We learn from Jonah that God is a sovereign God. Do you believe God is sovereign in control of every element of life? We learn that from Jonah, where God is constantly sending one thing or another, constantly appointing one thing or another. Jonah's not in control. The Ninevites are not in control. God is sovereign and in control, lording over creation and involved in human affairs. Jonah, of course, is a book about the grace and the mercy of God. Uh, Grace, according to Tim Keller, is what he calls the elevator music of the book of Jonah. I love that. It's the background music, the muzak, so to speak, that's playing in the background as we read Jonah. We find that Jonah teaches us, as much as any book in the Old Testament, about the everlasting grace and compassion and mercy of God toward all people, even the ones that we don't like. And of course, the book of Jonah, as we've seen, is a book that's about the critical importance of quick obedience, of not dilly-dallying. When God speaks, we're to hear God's voice and we're to respond quickly to the call of God if we are a disciple following after Jesus Christ. But last week we learned, too, that one of the themes of Jonah is the very great danger of unchecked resentment, particularly in a disciple's life. And the reason that that's so important is because that's kind of the Jonah that we see through most of the book. Jonah, at the core of his heart, is an angry, bitter, resentful man. And his resentment is basically attuned to God. He resents God for redirecting his life, calling him away from the comfort zone of his own home there in Israel. He resents God for loving people that he, Jonah, resented and despised because of their bloodthirstiness. He resents God for being willing to forgive the Ninevites when Jonah, of course, wanted God to judge them. When it was all said and done, I'm telling you the very day that the Ninevites repented turned from their sin and turned to God was for Jonah, mark it down, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And that's in part what makes Jonah such an ironic character as we study God's word. Let's take a look and see how the story of Jonah concludes beginning in the fifth verse of Jonah chapter four. Everybody with me ready to read? Would you shout amen? Here's what it says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be in absolute control in this place today. What I say really doesn't matter. We pray that God's word would be sufficient, and God's word would do the talking this morning. Take it by your spirit and plant it deep in the life of every Hillcrester and friend of Hillcrest here this morning that we might be changed through an encounter with the very eternal and we pray it in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. amen. Now, again, if you were here last week, uh, we got into a discussion about some of the dangers of anger and unchecked resentment We talked about how that kind of thing, first of all, destroys our peace, right? We talked about how it robs us of our joy. We talked about how it distracts us from our purpose, the purpose of ministry for which God has placed us here. And then perhaps even more significantly, we talked about how anger and resentment and a bitter spirit can compromise our testimony about Jesus, listen. If you want to try to influence people for Jesus Christ, you're going to have a hard time doing it if you're living with anger and resentment and hostility because that kind of stuff eats you up and it's written all over your face most of the time. People are not looking for another thing that's going to make them down in the dumps. They're looking for something that can get them out of the dumps, amen. They're looking for people with the joy of God and with the joy of the Lord. These are the kinds of things that can happen when a bad day, produces a resentful heart let me talk to you about two things that I think jump off the page in the latter part of the book of Jonah whenever resentment takes hold of your heart here are a couple of tendencies that you ought to write down first we tend to set and observe when God tells us to go and engage y'all know what I'm talking about this morning This is the proverbial, I'm just gonna, I'm so angry, I'm gonna take my ball, put it in my arm, and I'm gonna walk away from the game. And it's really easy to do when your heart's all aflutter with anger and bitterness and resentment. And make no mistake to everybody here who knows that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. If you know Christ personally, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has called you to minister the gospel of grace and to be a missionary wherever you are. The house is full this morning from east to west and from north to south with people who know Jesus and would give testimony to Jesus, and what that means is you're called by God to be a minister of the gospel. And you're called by God to be a missionary wherever you are, and that means having a heart that is exuding the joy of the Lord. Otherwise, you're going to end up sitting and observing instead of going and engaging. Now, this comes in large part when you make a decision like Jonah did to resist loving others as God has loved you. You say, well, you don't know what certain people have done to me. No, I don't know, and I can only imagine because I've had a lot of hurt directed to me in my time, but the bottom line is for you or me or anybody, it doesn't matter what anybody else has done. The Bible teaches very clearly that nothing that anybody has done to you or me has caused more offense than what you and I together did in the presence of God when we've sinned and offended God. It was your sin and mine that put the Son of God on the cross, and when you forget that, Oftentimes, you'll be ruled by the things of this life that wound your feelings. And that will unalterably affect your role as a missionary, as a minister of the gospel of Christ. And even beyond that, when you allow that to take hold, I'm just saying it will poison your relationship and your fellowship with Almighty God. Jonah's in a running battle of wills with God here. He's angry with God, mad at the world. He's spoken his mind to God in the first three verses of Jonah chapter five, which we unpacked last week. He's told God exactly what for and then turned his back on God here in the latter part of chapter four and walked away from God, slamming the door in the face of God to go out, head for the hills just east of the city and pray that some bad stuff starts happening to what he thought were really bad people. Verse five, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Can you imagine? Here's Jonah been obedient to God, but it's a a very perfunctory way. He goes in and he preaches just to get God off his back. He didn't preach for the joy of seeing those appointed unto salvation respond to the free grace of God. He responds to just fill a religious duty before God. And then he goes out with the hope that he could get a prime stadium seat just in case it didn't take so that he himself would have the best view when fire and brimstone started to fall on the Ninevites. He's expecting to see the judgment of God and it's what he's hoping for. Have y'all ever seen some of these dramatic pieces on television where the actors are playing and then at some point the protagonist turns and looks straight into the camera and starts talking to you, the viewer? Have you ever seen that happen? They start carrying on a conversation with you, and you can almost see this happening to Jonah, where the action begins to unfold, and we're wondering what's going to happen next, and then it's almost like he stops and when he's saying, what's he doing out there? Why is he climbing on the hill, sitting in the hot sun with a view of the city? And then he turns and faces the camera, and he says, what? You don't, You don't really think that what they've just done is real, do you? I'm telling you, I'm pretty convinced it's fake. You really don't think it's going to take, do you? You really believe that they're going to go, uh, not go back to living exactly as they've always done? You really believe that they're not going to be the enemy of Israel that they've always been? Just stay tuned, viewer, because I'm telling you, what's going to happen is they're going to go back, and then God's going to see that I was right all along, and I'm going to be right here to watch it when it happens. I'm telling you that's a messed up man right there. And the fact of the matter is Jonah was so blinded by his own resentment, he couldn't see that the Ninevites really wasn't the problem and God surely wasn't the problem. Jonah was the problem. Jonah was messed up because he was full of resentment and because he was full of resentment, he couldn't even recognize that his life was messed up. And that's where resentment starts. You allow, the perceived faults of others to rob you of the joy of the Lord and pretty soon what happens? If you don't deal with it spiritually and materially and properly, it will start to eat up your entire life. This is the classic case of Jonah observing the speck in somebody else's eye all the while, he's got this big two by four walking around out of his own eye. He's a living illustration of that teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And what's the result? For this man who is a prophet of God, diminished productivity in the life of the prophet. Everything comes to a halt. It's kind of like having a marriage squabble. I'm sure that all the couples in here never fight, right? I've told you about the couples coming in for pre-marriage counseling and I, I say, okay, let's, let's spend today's session talking about how to manage conflict. Oh, preacher, we never fight. And I want to say, okay, grow up and get real, you know, because you're going to. You can't live with somebody, not fight. So sometimes you're married, you get into a squabble, and what happens? I mean, tempers flare and voices get loud, and then everything goes quiet. And that's because you can't stand being in the same room with each other. You go to different ends of the house. There's no communication. There's no talking. And that's kind of what happens here, Jonah, here's the ultimate irony of this closing narrative. Jonah goes out and sat when he should have been going in and engaging. He quits at the wrong time. You know the question I have and I'm reading this? Son, why are you not in town there discipling just somebody, anybody? Yeah, you preach the gospel, and yes, many of them came to Christ, but they don't know nothing about nothing in the kingdom of God. you got to help them. People need help growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And instead of going in and engaging, he goes out and sets. Man, you look at the great example of the Apostle Paul. He'd go into all these great metropolis towns, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, Colossae, he goes into them, preaches the gospel, hangs around a while. He doesn't just go in, preach it up, watch an invitation happen and then scoot out of town. It's everyday ministry in the life of the Apostle Paul. He hangs around, he gets the church established, he gives them the basics, he helps them to understand what they must know in order to then become disciples themselves so that they don't need a trained preacher to be doing all the work. They've got everything they need in order to engage in ministry and missions all by themselves. This is what Jonah should have been doing. But he'd become a sitter, an observer, an evaluator. And frankly, he's hoping for the worst. That often happens in churches, by the way, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed how much setting we do in churches? Y'all are setting right now. This would be a good time for me to have everybody stand up for the rest of the sermon. But I won't because it's better. Y'all would distract me if I did that, frankly. Some things you need to be seated for. Not all setting in church is bad. When it's listening to preaching and the like, it's a good thing. We go, to, we sit in worship. We sit in connect groups. We sit at dinners. We sit at banquets. We sit at Training sessions. Man, there's a lot of sitting around that happens in church. And the sad truth is, oftentimes, that becomes the standard for the effectiveness of the church. Pete, the first question everybody asks how many of y'all running? How many of y'all, you know, how many are coming to Hillcrest, right? That's the first question everybody wants to know. Really, what's implied in that is how many people do you have applying pressure to their posteriors during the week at church? As if that's the effective success, the measurement of success of the church. I'm telling you, one of the things we're learning at Hillcrest, success is not, a, I mean, it is a part of the ministry. We want people coming, obviously. But how many people are we seeing engage in the ministry of the gospel? How many people are we sending away to the mission field? I submit to you, that's a better, far better evaluative instrument than how many are simply coming and. Setting, because a lot of times we just use setting as an excuse for not doing anything to make a difference in the lives of other people. Tom Rainer and Ed Stetzer wrote a book several years ago called Transformational Church where they make this statement. Regrettably, it has become acceptable to sit in church week after week and do nothing but call yourself a follower of Christ. And that's where the rub comes in. Nothing wrong with coming and setting. All of us do that. But if that's all you do is come and set, then there's a sickness that's present in the life of the disciple at that point. And it inevitably raises a question. This is the 800-pound elephant in the room. Probably Elephants are bigger than 800 pounds, aren't they? This is the billion-pound elephant in the room, right? The question that needs to be addressed. Everybody with me? Say amen, because I have to ask it. What are you doing in the kingdom besides coming and sitting? And if the answer to that question is, well, that's pretty much it. Then the next question is, why is that the case? What's the reason for that? Because sometimes it's just the fact that we don't always know what the next step is. Sometimes we're infants, we're babes in Christ. And so all of us in our walk with the Lord, there are times in our life where we need to just drink a little milk. And sometimes we need people to actually put the bottle in our mouth and help us. I had the privilege of leading a young woman to faith in Christ just this week. And I visited with her for a good while, over an hour. We talked about a lot of things as it related to the gospel. And it occurred to me that she was ripe for the picking. And so I said, are you ready to do this now? And she said, yes, absolutely. And I said, well, do you want to just talk to God and ask God to save you? And she looked at me and she said, I wouldn't even know what to say. Can you help me? And I said, absolutely, I can help you. And so sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we just sit because we don't know what's next. But then there are other times where we sit and it's for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we sit around because we're just not happy about life or not happy about stuff or not happy with God. We get resentful. And that's the case with Jonah. He's uninvolved now and ineffective in the kingdom because he can't get control of the inner hostility that's at work within him. And that's always a problem. Y'all familiar with the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15, right? The most popular parable Jesus ever told. But may I ask you, are you familiar with his elder brother? The elder brother doesn't get a lot of preaching time, but I I think it's more fun to preach about the elder brother than it is about the prodigal son even. Because that elder brother's messed up. He's a picture of Jonah. Does Jonah not look like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son? Man, they are mirror images of one another. You remember the story the prodigal son wanted his inheritance early, and the father gave it to him. My kids come and want the inheritance early. I'm telling, go away, boy, you bother me. You ain't, you're probably not gonna get it when I'm gone, for that matter, because I'm gonna spend it all first, intentionally so, So I don't know why he gave it to him, but he did. And he went through it like a hot knife through butter. Had no idea how to handle money. Went nuts. Ended up in the hog pen. Broke. Ends up saying, I'm better as the lowest servant in my father's house than in here with these pigs. Goes home. Father runs to meet him. Weeps and laughs all at the same time, embraces him with multiplicity of hugs and kisses. And the reality is he says, let's not stop with me, man. Let's throw, let's throw the mother of all parties right here, man. Let's kill the fatted calf. Put that ring on, family ring on his finger, put the best robe I've got on his back. Get this guy cleaned up. Help him to be looking good. Because we're getting ready to celebrate in his honor. The only problem was the other elder brother heard about it. And he was disappointed, not only that there was gonna be a celebration, but that there was gonna be no punishment. No celebration. We ought to tie that boy to the whipping post. There needs to be some punitive action on his part. Am I hearing this correctly? You're telling me we're gonna throw him a party and kill that blue ribbon calf for him? And then he begins to reason in his own spirit. This is unjust. Wait a minute, I'm the dutiful son. I'm, I never left home. In fact, I managed my father's money. I've made him wealthy. I've made sure this farm operated at a profit. I've done everything that I know to do to magnify my father's name. And I never got a party. I never got a dinner. The father showed mercy and grace to his young son, but the elder brother only wanted him to show judgment. Does that not sound like Jonah? It's Jonah. And the response of the elder brother is no different than Jonah. He's going outside the camp to sit and pout. And what's tragic is that by so doing, he missed the party. He missed the party. A lot of people in churches miss the party. We're supposed to be run running party in the kingdom of God, filled with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, which has to mean if we lose the joy of Jesus, we lose our spiritual strength at the same time. And that's the result of self-centeredness. Life becomes all about us. So resentment's dangerous. Pushes you to the sidelines, cripples your spiritual productivity. So be very careful. Because if you get a self-centered attitude toward God's grace like Jonah and the elder brother got, not only will it make you miserable, not only will it turn you ugly, it will render you useless when it comes to kingdom work. There's a second thing that we see in this text as well, and that is when we're eaten up with resentment unchecked, we obsess about what's comfortable at the expense of what's critical. We obsess about what's comfortable at the expense of what is Critical. I'm just saying, my own personal experience, there are very few things, if anything, that will cloud your vision like unchecked anger. Because when you're full of resentment, you're going to have this tendency to see exactly what you want to see and nothing else. God, in his marvelous grace, comes to minister once again to the pouting prophet. Even in the midst of this tirade, And Jonah never seems to recognize the gracious hand of God. Notice again verse six. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. In some of your translations it will say a vine. Uh, This plant, this vine, it was probably a, a small shade tree actually that God supernaturally made to come up in an instant. And God made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was what? said out loud. Exceedingly glad because of the plan. It's the first time we've seen the man happy in the whole book. And it has nothing to do with what God has done supernaturally to the people that he was called to preach to, it has everything to do with what God did so he could be more comfortable. was the only time he was happy was when it was about him. And when his own efforts to try to make himself comfortable had failed, God came and did it through the ministry of grace yet again. The Bible says God did it intentionally to ease his discomfort which is, I think, really only part of the story. There's an interesting play on words there if you do a Hebrew study here, and that is that the word discomfort has a multiplicity of meanings, one of which is not only discomfort, but it's also the same word that's used and translated evil or wickedness. God planted the shade tree to ease his wickedness. And so... I think that that shade tree is there not just to kind of cool Jonah down a little bit, protect him from the heat of the sun. I think that God is hoping that by being gracious to Jonah, Jonah would get the picture that nothing is more significant than God's grace and that God ministering to him even in his time of self-centered anger against the people that God wanted to save and even against God himself. God is hoping that that shade tree would somehow drive the wickedness away from Jonah's heart. God was being gracious to him, longing for him to connect with God so that he might see truth from error. He wants to flush out Jonah's ingratitude. And so, Jonah never makes the connection between the two. Again, he's just interested in himself. And we know that because the very next day, the same God that had appointed a vine to deliver Jonah appoints a worm to eat it up. That's in verse 7. When the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered, no more shade. And then watch what happens next. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. That's one of those famous desert winds known as a Scirocco. Volkswagen used to make a little car called the Volkswagen Scirocco, right? Well, the word Scirocco means hot wind. Typically coming out of the east, inside those hot desert winds, the temperature could elevate to above 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And so now things were hot, yes, before, but now they're really hot. And Jonah's about to phase out, so much so that he's ready to die. Now, why the worm and why the wind? Well, God's trying to teach the prophet a lesson about how warped his perspective is had become, how self-centered he'd become. And that's the thing about resentment. If a person's eaten up with resentment toward other people or someone else, you can be assured that they are really focused on themselves. They can't see anything else clearly because their focus is pretty much 100% inward at the exclusion of just about everything else. See, Jonah was more concerned about that vine. This is the irony of ironies in the book of Jonah. Jonah is more concerned about that vine and losing the vine and what the loss of the vine would mean to him than he was about the eternal destiny of over 100,000 people. I mean, and God comes to him here and asks him the most penetrating question in the whole book, which is the last verse of the story, verse 11, actually In verse 10, the Lord says, Jonah, you pity the plant. Verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Jonah was more concerned about his own creature comforts in this life than he was about the eternal destiny of 120,000 souls. God comes to him and he says, I need for you to grow up and look beyond yourself and outside of yourself because the reality is your perspective is totally distorted. Distorted. Do I not have a right to be concerned about over 100,000 people who are created in my image? And yes, they're wicked, but you used to be wicked too. The last time I checked, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And every person in that village is an eternal being who's gonna live forever somewhere. They're going to either live with me in my presence in the place called heaven or they're going to live separated from me and my glory in the place called hell. But everybody's eternal and everybody's going to live forever somewhere. Do I not have a right to be concerned about those Ninevites and where they spend the rest of eternity? And let me tell you something. If you follow after me, God says, and I'm concerned about them, you better be concerned about them too. And that means victory over self. Let me ask you the question. Are there any vines in your life? Is there anything in your life that you value more than you value God and the will of God for your life in this world? Because if the answer to that question is yes, Whatever that vine is, has just become an idol. And we know how God feels about that. I'm telling you, you tell a lot about people about what makes them laugh and what makes them cry. And the sad reality about the culture that we live in today is that there are way too many people who are laughing at the wrong things and failing to cry over the right things. So, if you're somebody here today that's lost your joy, maybe you're delighting in a vine rather than delighting in Jesus. Because it's real easy for your contentment and your security to get wrapped up in a vine of this world rather than for your life to be wrapped up in the Savior who, in John chapter 15, described himself as the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man or a woman abides in me and I in him, they will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jonah was learning this the hard way because he was delighting in a vine rather than abiding in the vine. That'll preach right there. And that's where your life becomes derailed in your walk with the Lord. One of the things that maturity reveals to us in times where we become a grumpy disciple is that sometimes worms can be a great blessing. Jonah despised that worm that God sent. Oh, he was happy when God sent the vine. He was mad when God sent the worm. The sad thing is he reveals his own immaturity because he doesn't realize that sometimes God sends worms and they can become our best friend. Because sometimes only a worm can get you to the place where you realize what's missing in your life. See, God's not interested in being part of your life. Y'all realize that? He doesn't want to be part of your life. God wants to be your life. He wants to be it. don't put God on the list of priorities. God doesn't want to be on your list of priorities. Everybody hear me say amen. He don't want to be on your list of priorities. God wants to be your life. Priorities revolve around him. He don't want to be on the same list with any priority. He wants to be the priority. And when he's not, and you claim to know him as Lord and Savior, you know what he's going to do? He's going to send a worm And the worm is going to be sent for the purpose of eating up whatever it is that you're prioritizing is more important than God in your life. So in that sense, it becomes a friend. Jonah failed to recognize it. It wasn't written down, but he failed to recognize the spiritual truth. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. As we conclude this morning, the pivotal question is repeated twice in chapter four. Do you have a right to be angry? God asked it twice. And the funny thing is, if anybody's got a right to be angry with others, it's God. And yet, God deals with us graciously and patiently. Don't you love the verse in 2 Peter that said the Lord is patient with you? Our Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to what? Not wanting that anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's how God relates to all people and that's how God wants us to relate to all people, to be patient with them, to be gracious and to show mercy regardless of who they are or what they've done. And so as we finish our study of the book of Jonah, again, as I said early on, our primary concern ought not be a focus on the fish. Everybody wants to focus on the fish. The fish is a bit player, gets three verses out of the whole book, he's gone, that's it. Our focus is not whether a man can live inside of a fish. The bigger question is whether the spirit of Jonah lives inside of me. That's what you need to do business with, is the spirit of Jonah, that hostile, resentful, angry, grumpy spirit living in you. Some have said the most significant verse in Jonah is Jonah 4.12. You say, well, pastor, there's not a Jonah 4.12, right? There's not, but don't you wish there were? Do you not want to know what happened to Jonah? The story ends abruptly. We're not told what happens to Jonah. Don't you want to know? I want to know what happened to that prophet. We don't know. Kind of like the ending of the book of Acts. Hopefully, prayerfully. Jonah grew up he didn't stay the way that he was and one thing's for sure that's what God wants out of you and me your portrait is still a work in progress as is mine praise God he is not finished with me yet amen and as you continue your journey and your walk with the Lord there'll be some good days to come no doubt even some great days historic days monumental days but there'll also be some bad days. Can I just say this morning, as you journey along with the Lord, there will be along the way some terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. And when it comes to living with joy or living with resentment, when those days comes, the grace of God will make all the difference. You and I have to learn to see the grace of God in every dimension of life. And then the lesson of Jonah is... Not only don't miss the grace of God when it comes to your life, but never fail to take the grace of God and then minister it as a gift to others, even others that you don't always like. This is the word of Jonah, the word of the living Lord, and all God's people said, amen.